happy Monday morning and welcome to Rising. We've got a great show planned for you and I'm so excited. There is joy in my heart because Bacha Angar Sargon is back with us, of course. Hello, Bacha. Thank you so much for having me, Robbie. I'm so happy to be here with you as well. Mm. Our pleasure. All right, well, we've got a stellar lineup today. A friend of the show, Alayami Aluren, will break down some disturbing new photographs out of Rikers Jail. And we'll also get into the new bill designating California a sanctuary state for transgender teens and their parents. But first, over the weekend, President Vladimir Putin accused Western elites of poisoning the world with the, quote, satanic overthrow of traditional faith and values. The message came in a speech confirming Russia's annexation of four Ukrainian provinces, including the Luhansk and the Donetsk. Here's what Putin had to say. Quote, let me repeat that the dictatorship of the Western elites targets all societies, including the citizens of Western countries themselves. This is a challenge to all. This complete renunciation of what it means to be human, the overthrow of faith and traditional values, and the suppression of freedom are coming to resemble a religion in reverse, pure Satanism. Putin continued, these poisonous fruits are already obvious to people and not only in our country, but also in all countries, including many people in the mm. West itself. So, mm. Robbie, what did you make of this speech? You know, I, I think it's uh, it's very interesting how in many ways, and this is not the first time at all he's done this, but um, he sort of uh, is savvy enough to the, the language that he uses to kind of attack um, the West, to attack America, et cetera, he actually dresses it up in, in a kind of um, uh, complaint about elites and about our culture that actually many American conservatives or the, the new American right uh, feels, right? They feel that there's an attack on traditional values, on, on traditional religious values, on you know gender norms and things like that. That's very much a, a, what one of the most animating aspects of, a, of the kind of new right philosophy is. So Putin knows to kind of play to that if he wants to kind of play to the skepticism that uh, obviously many, you know, many on the left also have skepticism of, of helping Ukraine, but uh, so, do, so too do many on the right. In fact, the only congressional opposition to uh, continuing to arm and supply Ukraine has come from a, a faction of very conservative lawmakers. So I, I'm always uh, interested to see Putin knowing enough to speak to that. Of course, now, now that's my analysis of it. Of course, it's very hypocritical, right? I mean, he's he, the greatest threat to, to various freedoms and you know, people's way of life is when they're like in danger of being killed, as they are because he <laughs> invaded another country um, without justification. So it's, uh, it's hypocritical, but it is, uh, it is savvy where it, where it comes from. What, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I have a very similar response. Do you, if you want to see what a demagogic, what, what a demagogic populist leader actually looks like, you can look to Putin, who is using arguments that a lot of populists make in good faith in the mm -hmm. West, right? In a debate that's happening in a democratic context across the West, he makes that argument as a justification for something totally unjustifiable, right? Which is annexing territory from another country. Um, so it's that non sequitur, right? Which you're pointing out between saying, you know, there is this kind of civilizational debate going on about the role of faith, the role of gender, right? In our society that's happening across the world. Yes, that's true. Yes, there are elites imposing that. And there is 
is a populist reaction to that coming from the bottom up across the democratic Western world. That happens to not include Russia at this point because his sort of takeaway from that, or at least rhetorically, is therefore we are justified in annexing, you know, Lugansk and Donetsk. Right, right. Which, which has not, which by the way, and that has nothing to do with the you know, traditional value, or th this clash of visions for how society should be. Right. Those right. regions would, you know, some in those regions would argue that they have wanted to be a part of Russia. That they, you know, there's some there, there are Russian-speaking people there who who desire to uh, affiliate with Russia, and that would be a you know a to that's like a self-determination argument, which I don't think is is totally ridiculous and totally without merit. Uh, Kim Iverson uh, used to. To co-host the show would talk about that. How you know? How, how do we? Are, are we imposing on them if we're saying they're not allowed to be part of a different country if they feel more more culturally um, uh, close to it? Now that's that, that issue. Unfortunately, has to be very set aside when they're you know they're being invaded, they're being attacked. So you have to now it's you know, that was taken out of their hands, right? Russia went ahead and started and launched a, a war over this, making rendering the whole idea very illegitimate. Uh, but I think it's a you know it's a caution uh, to American. Uh, to American populace, American independence, American uh, uh, people who are concerned about. When I, you know, I include myself in this to some degree. Some concerns I have about about what's being taught in schools and elite preferences uh, and ideologies and how they've you know taken over academia and how they've spread to many workplaces and things like that. But look, we, the right way to fight those battles is intellectually, is with free speech, is you know in the courts or in in electoral battles when when possible, uh, or just or just let, you know, letting free people associate with whatever ideas they want to, to whatever extent possible. It's not the way Putin is doing it, which is totally illiberal and, and thus totally hypocritical. C completely agree. Um, you know, the the it, there's such an irony to these sort of fake referenda, right? You know, they held a referendum in Donetsk and Lugansk and in some of the other regions and came back, you know, with sort of 99% want to be annexed into Russia. I mean, the irony here is that well over 80% probably would have voted yes in a free and democratic <laughs> referendum. And they have to undercut that by doing it in these, you know, very you know, completely yeah. illegitimate ways. And it reminded me of um, Lukashenko uh, in Belarus when he held a referendum and, and um, it came back, you know, with one of these ridiculous over 90 percent, um, you know, 93 percent support. And he said he said something absolutely hilarious, which was actually it was 100 percent support. We had to take it down to 93 so people would, you know, respect the results. Right. <laughs> and it's just hilarious because, you know, these people act he is actually quite um, popular. I mean, yes, there's dissent. But, you know, th they really undermine it by doing this. And it makes it impossible for people to genuinely say, look, I'm talking to people in the region. And, you know, Putin is very popular. They have been asking to be annexed to Russia for the last five, six years, right, since the Euromaidan revolution. Um, meanwhile, though, last week, uh, President Biden confirmed that explosions at the Nord Stream pipeline were no accident. However, just afterwards, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken called the apparent act of sabotage a, quote, tremendous opportunity for the U.S. Let's watch. It was a, a deliberate act of sabotage, and now the Russians are pumping out disinformation and lies. This is also a tremendous opportunity. It's a tremendous opportunity to, once and for all, remove the dependence on Russian energy, and thus to take away from uh, Vladimir Putin the weaponization of energy as a means of advancing uh, his uh, imperial designs. Uh, that's very significant. And that offers tremendous um, strategic opportunity for um, for the years to come.
So when you hear, uh, you know, U.S. or Western officials say things like that, I totally understand why, you know, many people who are skeptical of, of the kind of bipartisan, centrist foreign policy consensus, why so many people think, um, probably many of our viewers think that, was well, then was it the U.S. That, that bombed this pipeline? Like, I totally understand that. And yes, the U.S. has had a history, it, you know, in the past, our, our intelligence uh, operatives have engaged in sabotage and, you know, regi illegitimate re regime change, even more illegitimate than the kinds of the, the obvious ones, right? The ones that were actual, you know, uh, 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 invasions that were uh, that were apparent to the rest of the world. So I totally get why people think it's the U.S. Uh, like it would not, we can't put it past some of our sort of our deep state operatives. Um, that said, I, I, I would be I would be surprised to learn ultimately that we were responsible. It would seem do Doing that, A, hurts our own allies, Germany, and, uh, and risks just to making us totally morally discredited um, in the eyes of, of the rest of the world at a time where Russia is itself discrediting itself through its actions, or ra rather Putin, the Putin regime. Um, I, I, this, is a, this is a difficult one because it really doesn't make sense for anyone to have done this, and yet the experts are saying it does appear to be sabotage rather than anything accidental, which would be you know, far too convenient an explanation. So I don't know. What do you think, Batya? I, I'm sort of on the same page. You know, um, it, it's the kind of thing that lends a lot of credence to conspiracy theories, although I, too, will be very shocked to learn that the U.S. was behind this. And I think the lesson from this is really like people can benefit from things that they didn't necessarily do. Right. Like it can be the case that, you know, everything looks like, you know, had they mm -hmm. done this, you would understand why they have done it. And also that there really is not enough information at this point to say who was behind this. And I, like you, would be very surprised if it was the U.S. only because I don't trust this administration to have like the actual best interests of our economy at heart. I mean, everything they've been doing seems to me to be undermining what would be good in our interests. Right. So it would seem to me very, very shocking if they had taken this this step. Um, but I agree, we will benefit from it. And of course, that's a good thing. Yeah, well, we'll continue to explore that. So it's, it's fascinating. And, and obviously, we want uh, more answers. And hopefully, we'll get them eventually. But we'll have more answers for the audience sort of coming up next, because we both have our radars. Stay tuned for that. What is on your radar, Robbie? Well, here's some news that alarmed me, and it will probably alarm you as well. Remember EcoHealth Alliance? That's the scientific organization headed by Dr. Peter Dasik at the center of the public debate over alleged federal funding of gain-of-function research. Well, it turns out that EcoHealth Alliance is back at it again. The organization has applied for more funding to study bat coronavirus, coronaviruses in Southeast Asia. This research would involve, quote, community-based surveys and biological sampling of people frequently exposed to wildlife in Myanmar, Laos, and Vietnam, as well as, quote, sampling and PCR screening of bats and other wildlife at community surveillance sites to identify viruses and hosts related to the human infections, end quote. The NIH, that's the National Institutes of Health, the U.S. government organization that funds and approves such research, well, they granted the proposal. Seriously. More on that in a minute, but first a refresher for you in case you've forgotten. While many in the scientific community, including coronavirus czar Anthony Fauci, believe a natural zoonotic spillover is the most likely origin story for COVID-19, 
Other experts think it's possible that COVID emerged from a laboratory, possibly as a result of scientific experimentation on infected bats. Those who think the lab leak is a plausible explanation for the pandemic tend to be concerned about EcoHealth Alliance's previous activities. EcoHealth Alliance was the only U.S.-based group conducting research on bat coronaviruses in China. The group worked closely with the Wuhan Institute of Virology, which is situated in Wuhan, China, which just so happens to be where the pandemic got started. In the early days of the pandemic, when the lab leak theory began to gain steam, Dr. Dasik and other scientists signed an open letter in The Lancet condemning the, quote, conspiracy theory that COVID was anything other than a naturally occurring phenomenon. Dr. Dasik did not, however, disclose his obvious conflict of interest that EcoHealth Alliance was involved in the very research, in the very part of the world, that lab leak theorists are worried about. Reports from The Intercept contend that in its efforts to head off and prepare for a pandemic, EcoHealth Alliance oversaw an experiment in which researchers intentionally made coronaviruses more pathogenic and transmissible. One grant report contained evidence that the research group also did an experiment with infectious clones of MERS, another deadly virus. Dasik also conceded on an interview, in an interview with The Intercept that EcoHealth Alliance may have submitted a research proposal that involved inserting a fern cleavage site into a bat coronavirus genetic sequence, the fern cleavage site being the key element of COVID-19's adaptability. Dasik said the experiment did not receive public funding and thus did not proceed, though it's unknown if scientists at the Wuhan Institute of Virology or elsewhere made progress on this front before applying for the public funds. In April of 2020, the NIH ordered, by the way, EcoHealth Alliance to stop spending the grant money it had previously received. It was reported that this was done at the behest of the Trump administration. A few months later, the funding resumed. Now flash forward to the present. EcoHealth Alliance's latest project has a start date of September 21st, 2022. That's last week. And is expecting to run for five years. Now the amount of the grant is only $653,392. In terms of public funding, that's a drop in the bucket. So to be clear, the headline here is not that the NIH is like bankrupting taxpayers or something. The headline is that such research continues to be performed at all. Peter Daszak, by the way, did not respond to a request for comment, but in defense of this kind of research in general, he says that, look, it's important to understand where these diseases come from if we're going to prevent them and treat them. Other scientists completely disagree and think the risk of creating pandemics greatly outweighs whatever knowledge is accrued through conducting research in close proximity to bats. <laughs> And Andy, Andy Weaver, a former sec assistant secretary of defense for nuclear, chemical, and biological defense programs in the Obama administration, told Vox that, quote, because of our government support for this risky gain-of-function research, we've created the perfect cover for countries that want to do biological weapons research. The number one thing he recommended in that interview with Vox was, quote, ending government funding for risky research that plausibly could have caused this and future pandemics, end quote. Vox also notes that, quote, another potentially risky area of virology research involves identifying animal species that act as reservoirs of viruses that have the potential to cross over into humans and cause a pandemic. Scientists involved in this work go out to remote areas to take samples of those pathogens with dangerous potential, bring them back to the lab, and determine whether they might be able to infect human cells. 
Well, this is precisely what researchers at the Wuhan Institute of Virology apparently did in the years leading up to COVID-19 as they searched for the animal source of the original SARS virus, end quote. So not everyone in the U.S. government is perfectly content to let federally funded scientists uh, continue to poke and prod infected bat parts in foreign laboratories. Last week, Senator Joni Ernst, a Republican from Iowa, introduced a bill to prohibit EcoHealth Alliance from receiving any federal funding. Quote, giving taxpayer money to EcoHealth to study pandemic prevention is like paying a suspected arsonist to conduct fire safety inspections, she said. NIH got it right when it canceled the funding for the experiments EcoHealth Alliance was conducting with China's state-run Wuhan Institute. In addition to violating multiple federal laws, EcoHealth has still not turned over documents about these dangerous studies that NIH has requested on multiple occasions that could offer vital clues to the origins of the COVID-19 pandemic, end quote. Justin Goodman, a senior vice president of advocacy and public policy at the White, Coast, White Coat Waste Project, told the Daily Caller that EcoHealth Alliance's animal experiments should not be defunded, should be defunded, not refunded, end quote. So uh, I saw this uh, going viral on social media kind of over the weekend, people saying, <laughs> did EcoHealth Alliance really get another grant to study back coronaviruses? My God. And uh, yeah, it appears that they have. And it, it, as I said, it's a small amount of money. It's not really, you know, the money is not, is not the que- is not the issue here. The issue is that like why is this group? Which to be clear, we do not know for sure. The public has questions. I think they are very they are well justified questions. I think the explanations that Peter Dasik and others have given for what they were doing and why it was not dangerous and why it has nothing to do with with COVID. I, I think those answers are not satisfying whatsoever. And uh, there's been great you know, reporting, in, including in The Intercept, from, uh, from people affiliated with our former colleague, Ryan Grimm, that really gets to the heart of the matter. And I you know, encourage anyone who's skeptical to, to look at those stories. We don't know for sure. I accept that. There's no, no, there should be due process. There should be, you know, investigations. I'm not saying, you know, lock anybody up for this. Uh, right now, we need to know more. But certainly... We, we should question whether this kind of research still needs to be done. Like, and, and there is not, there is, there may be a consensus over these actual, these actual researchers think it's important to do this because this is how they keep getting grant money. But other scientific experts, other people in the scientific community are, wonder whether this is worth it, given that, you know, going into these caves, collecting these samples, then having them in a laboratory, Fine, maybe there is some benefit from understanding that, but it, there's also tremendous risk from doing the process I just described. And some people wonder whether we're just we're making the pandemics more likely, forget about understanding them, but we're making them more likely to occur because we do this kind of research. What do you think, Bacha? I, I, I'm so glad that you're highlighting this because I, I think I, to me, this is like file under they learned nothing. You know what yeah. I mean? Like they cannot admit a single mistake, including gain of function research. I mean, I don't understand why we're not treating gain of function research like nuclear weapons. I, we should have a nonproliferation agreement. You yes. know, I, I think it's totally true that this could be so easily weaponized. And why are we just pursuing? I mean, I'm a Luddite more generally. I think that, thing, you know, I, I'm totally comfortable saying, you know, no, we should not pursue this. No, we should not pursue that. It's too harmful or whatever it is. But, you know, we, we actually know 
where this potentially leads, right? I mean, there's a very uh, legitimate argument to be made that um, this leads directly to millions and millions and millions of people dying. And I just think their their reluctance to admit any mistakes is kind of what's leading here, right? Because they can't even admit, Dr. Fauci couldn't admit to you when you asked him about this, that this had been a mistake. And so, you know, we're just going to keep seeing this because, you know, the, the elites are so stuck in their version of things. And it was the other side that got this right. And so there's just no um, impetus and no incentive to say, actually, maybe this was a mistake. Right. They, they'll say that, no, 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 that's not really gain of function research. Technically, right. technically, gain of function <laughs> research is something else. An answer that satisfies absolutely no one because, well, who cares? Then the thing we're talking about that you're saying, well, that's not right. really gain of function research. Well, let's also be concerned about that. Right. That also sounds concerning. <laughs> well, I'm looking forward to your radar, Bacha. That'll be up next. Stay tuned, everybody. What's on your radar, Bacha? Well, Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi made waves on Friday for suggesting that Florida needs illegal immigrants to pick crops. Pelosi made the comments at a news conference during which she was asked if she was discouraging Democratic House members from speaking out about the border crisis. Let's watch. The fact is, is that uh, we have a responsibility to secure our border. We also have a responsibility to recognize the importance of newcomers to our nation. Right now, the best thing that we can do for our economy is to have comprehensive immigration reform. We have a shortage of workers in our country, and you see even in Florida, some of the farmers and the growers saying, why are you shipping these uh, immigrants uh, up north? We need them to pick the crops down here. I want to go through these remarks closely because I think they inadvertently reveal a lot about the Biden administration's incomprehensible refusal to secure the border. Pelosi inadvertently said the quiet part out loud, and I think it's worth dwelling on the argument because usually this is something that Democrats work really hard to hide. Quote, we have a responsibility to secure our border, Pelosi said. But we also have another responsibility, she argued, one that she seemed to view as intention with securing the border. We have a responsibility to, quote, recognize the importance of newcomers to our nation. She then pivoted to the economy to explain exactly what she meant. Quote, right now, the best thing that we can do for our economy is to have comprehensive immigration reform. Now, that might seem rather curious at first. What does immigration reform have to do with the economy? Well, Speaker Pelosi helpfully clarified, quote, we have a shortage of workers in our country, which is why Pelosi claims farmers are asking, why are you shipping these immigrants up north? We need them to pick the crops down here. We must secure the border, Pelosi said, but that doesn't mean that we don't recognize, quote, our moral responsibility. Pelosi was exoriated online for her comments. Many pointed out how shocking it was for the Speaker of the House to be endorsing hiring illegal workers. Others pointed out the racism inherent in assuming Central American migrants will be field hands. Still others pointed out the strong, but who will pick the cotton vibes? While many asked the obvious question, can you even imagine the response if Trump had said this? But most of all, her comments exposed something the left has been struggling mightily to hide, that they talk about immigration in moral terms 
when in actual fact, they think about immigration in economic terms. For Pelosi, the open border isn't a problem to be addressed so much as a solution to another problem, the labor shortage. Thanks to a slew of mass resignations, the labor market is currently extremely tight. Many employers, employers are struggling to fill their rosters. But this is translated into the first gains for workers since the 1970s when wages stagnated, though inflation is, of course, eating away at a lot of those gains. The national minimum wage remains a laughable $7.25 an hour, but few Americans are still making it. Almost 80% of American workers now earn at least $15 an hour thanks to the pandemic labor market. Now, that's still not a living wage in any major metro area, but the tight labor market has had a huge impact on low-wage and blue-collar laborers. You know how you undo those gains? You import an entirely new working class from a failed socialist state made up of people who are willing to work for much less money than an American worker. Undercut working class Americans by opening the border and signaling to the working class of other countries that the Speaker of the House believes there is work for them here. Don't take it from me. Take it from Senator Bernie Sanders in 2015. What right wing people in this country would love is an open border policy. Bring in all kinds of people who work for two or three dollars an hour. That would be great for them. I don't believe in that. I think we have to raise wages in this country. I think we have to do everything that we can to create the millions of jobs. So this is exactly what Pelosi is suggesting we do. Use immigration to address the labor shortage instead of raising wages for working class Americans such that these are attractive jobs for them. We are paying millions of dollars to shelter and feed migrants when we could be subsidizing farmers to hire American workers and pay them more. Pelosi argues, like many liberals, that, this more, that more immigration will improve the economy. And actually, she's right. GDP goes up with mass immigration. Of course it does. There are huge profits to be made when your workers aren't citizens and can't demand a living wage or safe working conditions. The rich get richer while the working class is once again hung out to dry. And then Pelosi has the audacity to call this our moral responsibility. The party that oversaw NAFTA, which shipped millions of good working class jobs overseas, is now lecturing the very people whose jobs they outsourced, telling them that it's their moral responsibility to endorse importing an entirely new class of people to take their jobs here at home. It is galling. Where is our moral responsibility to our fellow Americans? Scratch beneath the surface of most progressive claims to moral responsibility and you'll find a class divide that the elites are benefiting from very literally and demanding the working class pay for. But at least they are now admitting that these aren't asylum seekers, but economic migrants who the rich intend to exploit. What's amazing is that this is now the leftist position. It wasn't always so, as the Sanders clip reminds us, but even Pelosi herself admits that the Democrats' position today on immigration is one that, as Sanders argued as recently as 2015, is really a Republican position. Don't take it from me, Pelosi said on Friday. Listen to Ronald Reagan. Watch. But don't take it from me. Listen to Ronald Reagan. When I quote Ronald Reagan to my Republican colleagues, he doesn't get any applause. Can you imagine that? Not even Ronald Reagan, who has really said America is preeminent in the world because we have a constant flow of newcomers to our country. And when we close the door, we will be diminishing our preeminence in the world. Apparently, Ronald Reagan is now the Democrats' hero. <laughs> 
I've talked about this before on this show, how the Democrats' reversal on immigration reveals everything about who they view as their base. It was once the working class, which is why they sought to limit immigration, and today their base is liberal, overeducated elites. The overclass, which is why they seek to expand immigration under the guise of moral responsibility. What I hope by cl is clear by now is this. How progressives see immigration has much more to do with their economic status than it does with their moral virtue. Tarring people as racist or immoral for not wanting their jobs to be taken by people who cross the border illegally is despicable. The furthest thing from moral that you can imagine. It's to demand that people endorse their own descent into poverty while you welcome in the needy of other countries. I think that Nancy Pelosi and the rest of the Democrats truly believe that they are helping the vulnerable. Their hearts, like mine, truly bleed for these migrants. But I don't think they'd be able to drown out the suffering they are inflicting on working class Americans if, it, if they weren't also benefiting from this economically. And it's really time to call this out for what it is, moral preening at the expense of your less fortunate neighbors. So, Robbie, you brought up a great point last time we discussed this. You said, um, why aren't we making it legal for these people to work here? And at first I was sort of thinking that's that would be terrible because they, then they'd really be taking Americans jobs. But actually, I've come around because I think your point is a really good one. If they were here legally, right, then they would also be able to demand whatever the minimum wage in New York or D.C. is, right? And so at that point, they would be competing with American workers on an even footing, and the employers would have to be paying those better wages. So at that point, what they could they could hire just as easily hire an American worker, and they would have less incentive to do what the Speaker of the House is telling them to do, essentially, which is hire illegal workers. And that's ulti ultimately my agenda, is, is to legalize work, is to make it easy right. for everyone to work and then have you know the same equal opportunity to when appropriate you know agitate for higher wages and better conditions etc uh, because we have we do have work that look I, I take Nancy Pelosi's point she, she said it very uh, inartfully <laughs> that we do need there are jobs that need to get done it's I mean part of the housing uh, problem the uh, there's not enough housing anywhere in the country uh, well at least in a lot of places that people want to live uh, because you don't you literally cannot get construction crews to do work I mean ask anyone you know even in you know even in places where where there's less there's less regulation and there's less of a crunch you know ask people you know like oh do you, you know you want to have an addition put on, you want to buy a new house, you want anything you want to happen, it takes forever to get a construction crew because they simply don't have enough people. And so we're doing the worst of all worlds right now because we let, we're, we're, we're letting immigrants come in, make this kind of asylum claim, and then they're here waiting it. And then they're kind of working, but sort of under the table in a way that I appreciate what you're saying. That probably undercuts um, the, the American worker worst of all. And we have, there's so many absurdities, you know, baked into our system. Our, when we bring people here on student visas from, from Asia, from, from Africa, you know, to study, and, and uh, in uh, in America, then we, at the end of that, we send them 
back to their home country? Why would we let them stay here? We've gone through the business of educating them and we're shipping them back to their own country. Like stay stay here and then contribute meaningfully to the to the system that has just educated you. We do so many stupid things when it comes to immigration and I think it, and the the frustration, the anger that people feel about, you know, people coming in illegally or you're cheating the system. We could fix the system so that's not happening. It's that there's just so much that could be done that I think would make everyone a little less frustrated and a lot better off that just doesn't happen. And it's really it's really immiserating for all. Agreed. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for that, Bacha, and we'll have more rising right after this. If you have a trans, if, if the school district has a trans uh, student playing on a team, should there be a separate locker room for them or what? First of all, um, yes. I mean, if the girls are uncomfortable, and I don't blame it, if I had a daughter, I would want my, my daughter would be uncomfortable there. So the trans person can obviously use a different area of the locker room, and then everybody's happy. That was Caitlyn Jenner on Fox and Friends discussing, uh, you know, the hot button trans people in locker rooms, bathrooms, etc. Um, saying that, yeah, uh, she would actually support having a. So the question is actually uh, the, the host there, Ducey, said, should there be a separate, uh, you know, a separate locker room? And then what Caitlyn Jenner says is, well, how about you know, a separate area of the same locker room because I don't I think it would be ridiculous to expect schools to build like an entire additional locker room for what is likely to be very few students. Um, but it, it, what Caitlyn Jenner said actually goes to something I think I've said a bunch of times on the show that like I think probably everyone, if you could take the trans issue out of this entirely, I think everyone would probably benefit from and be more comfortable with and enjoy better like just more private areas in locker rooms in general. Um, like that, that can be, you know, changing in front of other people like that if you know physical intimidation bullying like bad things can happen in locker rooms just e again even without the, the trans issue so i would i would be for just just having more private areas in locker rooms in general and then we wouldn't have to have this you know very vicious national debate i i, I don't think there doesn't, doesn't need to be a law to cover it you don't need to say well here's what the accommodation exactly needs to be you could just say well here's a different you maybe you turn a corner maybe there's you know a partition or something or a, like a bathroom or something where where people can go and change and and that would that would seem to me to be just a no like everyone can get on board with doing more of that thing without without being being an attack on anyone's identity or you know trying to make any specific person uncomfortable because the whole situation is uncomfortable for everyone pretty much right <laughs> is that crazy Right. I think what's so amazing about this is, first of all, I believe that Fox News is the only cable network that has a full time trans contributor, which is Caitlyn Jenner. Right. Um, it, you know that that there is an aspect of identity politics that's being very cleverly and I think importantly exploited here. Um, you know, you have people who are conservative who, like we talk about a lot here, are in this case, it seems representing the sort of very commonsensical average Americans view on this that you know, maybe teenage girls don't want to encounter uh, male genitals in their locker room. But you it takes Caitlyn Jenner to be able to say that in a way that hopefully people on the left can hear, whereas she's saying something that, you know, most of the, if not all of the Fox audience is going to agree with. So I think that's a really important thing to point out. Um, you know, th th that idea that you can be trans and you can say, look, um, 
I, if I had a daughter, she has daughters, so I don't know why she said if I have a daughter, but um, you know, if I had a daughter, she would be uncomfortable with this. I can imagine a teenager being uncomfortable with this. Like that, 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 that is such an obvious point to make. And I think it's, it's great that she was able to make it. Um, I'll make just one more point, um, which is that, um, you know, there's new polling from Pew about the trans issue. And when you ask Americans, um, should transgender Americans be protected from discrimination in housing and in the workforce, an overwhelming number of Americans said yes. It's about 64% said yes. They want trans Americans to be protected from discrimination in housing and the workforce. When you ask Americans, should trans um, women be allowed to compete in women's sports, the number drops to less than 30 meaning that a huge proportion of Americans want transgender Americans to have legal protections from discrimination, to live in dignity, to be able to have a dignified life, but also are not on board with the more extreme versions of this agenda. And I think that's such an important thing to point out because Americans are very good people. They do believe in respecting the dignity of all, but you can go too far and you can end up harming the dignity of the vast majority of young girls by forcing them into a situation that makes them uncomfortable that even many trans people might admit is not is not the best solution. Yeah, and, and just being uh, being a teen is awkward and uncomfortable uh, for a lot of people, uh, for cis people, for, you know, if it's not just trans people. I'm sure it is for trans people, but it's for, like, everyone. So I don't understand why we couldn't just say, yeah, it should, let's tr work to make locker room and bathrooms more comfortable for everyone, and that's you know that's an anti, called an anti-bullying kind of initiative, and it but do, you know we don't need separate you don't have to create construct a, have a law that forces you to construct an entirely different facility. You don't have to say we need a law that you know imposes on. There's no right to kind of judge to say well maybe this isn't totally appropriate to have this specific person in this specific area. We're going to impose that on you, you know, vis-a-vis -vis the law. That like that seems like it's just going to make things more uncomfortable for everyone to have, you know, to say you know, this is the, the, the trans person has to be in the exact same vicinity, you know, it has to be gawked at by, you know, by the, by the cis people of that gender. Like that doesn't seem like a, a very, that, like, who wants to put someone in that, in that position? Let's just afford more dignity, privacy and comfort to everyone involved. It seems like we can all be on board with that. And, uh, you know, that's what uh, I played high school sports. That's what I would I would have wanted more privacy in the locker room when I was a kid. So would everyone. Right. Like I, it's it, you're, you're almost weird if you don't like who are the people saying no, everybody has to be forced to be in the same changing area and trans people like, uh, okay, OK, buddy, if that's your idea, I have some follow up questions for you. So I don't know. But uh, Jenner's comments uh, came after girls at a high school had claimed that they were banned from their own locker room after objecting to a transgender student using it. One of the students told WCAX-TV that the controversy started then when the trans student made an inappropriate comment as the girls' volleyball team was changing in the locker room. And yeah, that's like, again, the situation, the exact situation you want to avoid because bad stuff can happen in just like unfriendly, uncomfortable situations. So more, more, more private changing areas. It sounds perfectly, perfectly benign solution to this. But um, yeah, but we'll, you know, have, of course, continue to follow this uh, very, very important issue for a lot of people that you know, kind of has become now, I think, gender more so than race. You know, race, critical race theory was kind of the cultural school related mm -hmm. thing we were discussing for a while. And I think uh, it's really about gender, uh, the gender issue. So we will be continuing to discuss it um, every day on the show. And we'll have more rising for you right after this.
From caged showers to people asleep next to feces, more disturbing images from Rikers Jail in New York are coming to light in shocking pictures obtained by Gothamist, people not yet convicted of any crimes, shown living overcrowded in their own waste. Another shocking indictment of conditions at the famed, infamous New York uh, jail complex. So awful. Here to discuss further is movement lawyer and political commentator Olayami Oloren. Welcome, Olayami. Good morning. Thank you all for having me. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, these images are horrific. Um, I was so glad that you highlighted them um, on a very viral Twitter thread, which is great to see this getting the attention it deserves. How did we get here? Talk us through that. We've been trying to draw attention to this crisis for years now, and I wish I could say in the answer to how we got here that this is the first time we're seeing photos like this, but it's not. Just last year, we had horrific photos come out of the conditions inside Rikers, and nonetheless, they continue to fight bail reform. They continue to put more and more people in Rikers, and right now, Rikers was supposed to be on track to close by the year 2026. There, they were supposed to agree, de Blasio had agreed to the plan to close Rikers, and that was a plan that Eric Adams said that he co-signed as well, and it was supposed to be trying to decarcerate Rikers and get it down to 3,300 people. Rikers is a facility built to hold 3,000 people only. And right now, they have 5,000 black and brown New Yorkers that have not been convicted of a trial being incarcerated there. And that's why you see the conditions you see with people piled on top of each other with no space, with people being held in shower stalls, people losing their lives, people contracting illness. This condition, this is not new, unfortunately. It's great that the photos have come out and it helps strengthen the arguments of the proponents who are trying to show us that this facility needs to be closed. We need to stop using cash bail to weaponize it against poor people. But unfortunately, this is not new. Rikers has long been declared a human rights crisis, especially since 2020, uh, 2020 when the pandemic uh, reached catastrophic heights inside of the uh, inside of the jail. There's really no other way to describe it. So this has been a long time coming. Last year, there were 16 deaths in Rikers, which was the highest death toll since 2013. This is already, we're not completed the year yet, and we're already at 15 deaths. So we're well on track to be past the amount of deaths we had last year. This is horrific. Yeah, and you know, I think it's so important to note, as you just did, that these are, by and large, people who have not yet, they're awaiting trial. They've not yet even been convicted of crimes, which is not to say that, you know, people convicted of crimes suddenly deserve miserable conditions or anything like right. that. But this, this can happen. You could find yourself in this place, in this hell, without ever having actually done anything wrong or, or right. let alone having been subjected yet um, to due process. And, and what are the, you know, what are the way, it's not, and it's also not like, well, you're in for a weekend or something and then you're gonna be out. Like, what are the, the wait times for people stuck in, in Rikers like these days? Years, people can spend years in Rikers. I know one of the most famous stories that really moves people's heart is Khalif Prouder, who spent years there when he was 16 and accused of stealing a backpack he didn't steal, which eventually, even upon release, the long lasting psychological effects of that eventually led to him taking his life. So people spend years in Rikers, years waiting on a trial. And what often happens is most things in the criminal system don't go to trial. Most things in the criminal system don't end in a conviction. What actually happens is they use, by able by being able to set cash bail on people and send them to Rikers, because of the horrific conditions people want to get out, then they do plead to a crime, then they do take a conviction just so that they can be released from this horrific place. Or what happens in the few people that will eventually get their trial, you spend years and years sitting in Rikers, and by the time you have your trial, even if you, you beat the trial, even if you're found not guilty, you've already experienced all the effects of incarceration and what that does to your life in a permanent way. So this is just people people are in an unimaginable situation and the system is deliberately being set up that way because that's how it works. They can't take everything to trial. This is how you coerce people into plea deals.
Yeah, the story of Khalif Broder was just horrific. And I remember when he took his life and that there was this sense of this has to be the last time that this happens. This man was accused of a nonviolent offense. And then three years later, it turns out that the person who, you know, was accusing him wasn't even in the country anymore. It was just a totally horrific crime. But I guess I would ask, um, you know, why isn't it the case that a judge, you know, somebody is accused of something and the judge makes a decision based on whether they're likely to reoffend, what kind of a physical threat they pose to the community? I mean, why is that not the standard for determining whether or not somebody is released to wait trial outside jail? Oh, I mean, why it's not is a question about what our criminal system is actually here to do and maintain. But the reality is the bail system has nothing to do with public safety. The actual legal standard for whether or not bail is set on somebody is whether or not they'll return to court. That's the whole legal, the legal standard, whether or not you're a danger to public safety, whether or not you've been convicted. None of that is actually what we're analyzing because at arraignments, you haven't been convicted of a crime. No evidence is presented against you. What happens is someone makes an accusation against you. They bring charges, they arrest you, and then you're arraigned. They don't have to present anything at all, even if actually more often, I mean, more often than you can possibly imagine, the person that they're calling the victim is sitting in the audience saying, no, I did not want this person arrested. I'm not going to uh, go along with this case. I don't want this person prosecuted. Please stop, please stop. And the court says, noted and they set bail and they issue orders of protection in spite of what this person is saying even though they know they won't be able to prosecute it the prosecutors know on a, on a later date they will have to dismiss this case they won't be able to take it to trial instead they still exercise their ability to set bail on these people and create these kind of conditions so so would you support setting bail based on um a question of whether somebody is likely to reoffend, whether they do present a, a threat to the community or do you think nobody should be held prior to trial I would say the cash bail system is always in place to weaponize it against poor people. If we actually, we do have components, there are places without cash bail systems. Like New Jersey entirely got rid of its cash bail system in 2014 under Republican Governor Christie. It doesn't mean that no one gets detained pre-trial. What it means is if we found, if we have actual evidence, if the prosecutor is able to present some evidence that you are uh, a danger to public safety or if you are a flight risk or they have some reason to believe that this crime is so dangerous that um, you can't be out pre-trial, what they will do is they will just detain you, but they don't create a monetary um, reality because this this not works. If you're poor, if you're poor and someone sets a cash bail on you, you will just never be able to get out. It doesn't matter how it works, right? But if someone is rich, if somebody does have means, no matter how dangerous they are or whatever else standard you say, they can always purchase their freedom. So getting rid of a cash bail system takes that out of it. So people can still be right. detained. You can still detain people if they're a danger to people, but instead of making it a money thing where only poor people suffer in these circumstances, we have that. Well, right. I think that sounds like actually maybe a great compromise between people who are worried about public safety and, uh, you know, people who, right, don't want the the laws or the rules weaponized against the poor. Because right, as exactly. you said, I think that would make sense to a lot of people that if there's a danger, you're detained or you're, you're prevented from leaving. And, and based on, again, this needs to be, there needs to be due process. So, you know, if it's, if, right, you've already been convicted once, if you've, if you've already, if there's already, you know, overwhelming evidence or video evidence or that you've been convicted that you know you're not you are a danger to people on the street or, or maybe to your spouse or to your family or something like that maybe the, the presumption then could be that yeah we can't just let you go rather than it being like well how much likely are you to show up can you afford whatever uh, right. that would seem like a more logical way to do it 
Yeah, and, and, and it lends legitimacy to the things we already believe, right? If we have a presumption of innocence in our criminal system, we want to believe if I'm accused of a crime, I'm innocent until proven guilty. But a cash bail system takes that away from us. If we say, oh, you're innocent until proven guilty, but I'm going to send you to jail anyway, regardless, you're going to sit in jail because you don't have this amount of money. Are you really innocent until proven guilty? But if we have a system that says, okay, uh, prosecutors, when they arraign you on charges, if they can present actual evidence, they have some substantive reasons that they present to the judge for why this person is, is being incarcerated. That not only lends legitimacy to the presumptions that we already believe in, but it also provides some kind of cover for the, the judge and the prosecutors so that they can't say people aren't uh, so easily able to say you have the system in place where you're just, you know, weaponizing against poor people. You're just accusing poor people of crimes and throwing them, throwing them in jail and, you know, getting rid of the key. Instead, it says, no, we at least had some kind of standard. There's a reason why we're holding this person. It isn't just that we live in a, a city like New York City where we have 9 million people, but yet 90% of the people that are incarcerated at Rikers are black and brown. So I think I think it's a good system. And you actually see Chicago getting ready to do that in January 2023 with the Pretrial Fairness Act. They're going to do that. They're going to get rid of mostly cash bail, but still have a system in place where judges and prosecutors can um, have a standard for detaining people if there is a public safety element. You know, I, I take so much the point that you're making about the presumption of innocence, which is like literally, you know, <laughs> so much of, of our civilization is based on that and right. should be based on that. At, at the same time, um, there has been a big increase in violent crimes in, you know, f homicides, although that's now coming down, thank God. Um, rape is still up, carjacking, um, armed robbery, all of these are still up um, so, some from before the pre-pandemic um, lows. And it does seem like there is this sort of wave going through um, uh, New York. When I talk to police officers, they often tell me that a lot of this crime has to do with um, the feeling that prosecutors um, won't keep people incarcerated, that they are releasing people back onto the streets. So help me understand that, Olayami, from your point of view, where does this crime wave fit into this? I mean, obviously those photos are inexcusable when somebody is, you know, you know, in the custody of the state. I mean, it's absolutely unacceptable for them to be treated in that way. There is the presumption of innocence. I totally agree with you and respect the work that you do so much. But help me understand the role of this crime wave in um, what we're seeing here. So studies have actually already come out repeatedly. There have been numerous, numerous studies that already show that bail reform is not relinked to a rise in crime. Listen, when we say we have crime, there's a reason we have to actually explore the conditions that create crime and where we're living. We live in New York City, and since 2020 to now, New York City's cost of living has raised exponentially. We have an average of about, what, over $4,000 in rent to live here in this city. We have uh, eviction moratoriums being lifted. We have a homeless crisis. We have all kinds of issues that substantively affect why we have crime, right? So that is not this, um, this complete confusion as to how we're getting there. But when it comes to bail reform, the average person that is let out uh, uh, um, while their case is pending, they're not committing, they're not being rearrested. That's just simply statistically not what is happening here. The, the rise in crime is not linked to people being um, released on bail. But more importantly, like I said, bail has nothing to do with a public safety element in the first place, right? If we were having a conversation with this idea that crime is all happening because people people are being released or they're not being held, not only does it fly in the face of everything else we said in the system uh, about our system or presumption of innocence and all these different things, but it's simply not true. I think a study actually just re was released yesterday that of the 11,000 11, people that were released uh, during the pandemic because of, you know, remember when they released people because of the pandemic mm -hmm. issues in the jails, maybe about 17 were rearrested for some kind of 
of um, violent crime. Those numbers are staggeringly in the favor of bail reform. So unfortunately, that's not true. Also, I want to address something I think is important to stop taking police officers' narratives as fact. Of course, police are going to always tell you, yeah, 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 we're not in favor of these of these reforms because it takes money out of their pocket. We give over $10.6 billion is given in uh, NYPD. We give over $860 million uh, to the corrections officers. When we made budget cuts all throughout this year, we still gave $200 million more to NYPD in between uh, Rikers. They have an actual money incentive to continue fear-mongering and convince people that these systems need to be maintained this way. And it's just simply not the truth. Hmm. Well, Olaimi, we appreciate your perspective as always. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you for having me, y'all. And we'll have more Rising right after this. California Governor Gavin Newsom has signed a bill into law that aims to protect transgender youth and their families from out-of-state bans on gender-affirming care. The bill seeks to make California a sanctuary state for transgender minors and their families who flee areas that have restricted access to gender-affirming care. Newsom's bill provides safeguards meant to block out-of-state attempts to penalize families that seek this kind of care. The legislation allows California to take temporary emergency jurisdiction over a child that traveled to the state for gender-affirming treatments, taking away parental custody. Parental rights groups around the country have raised the alarm about the bill, arguing that it violates the Constitution by wrongly claiming jurisdiction over families from other states. The group sent a letter to Newsom last month asking him to veto the legislation, this according to the Center Square. So where are you on this, Robbie? Yeah, so look, the bill might just be, uh, well, law now, I guess it was signed, uh, might just be unconstitutional. Uh, it sounds like even its legislative backer, uh, that uh, uh, Scott Wiener character, I think that's his name, has uh, conceded that. I, I'm looking at the Los Angeles Times where he says we may have, where he, he acknowledges that uh, uncertainty. He says the bill was crafted carefully to hopefully avoid violating the U.S. Constitution. And he, he said, we have limits under the U.S. Constitution, and we're going right up to the edge of what we're able to do to protect um, you know, the community that he feels that this law is protecting. I guess I have, I have a couple thoughts, one being, OK, everyone keeps saying uh, in, the, in the kind of pro-gender affirming care category, they keep saying, well, they're not performing the surgeries or the things that conservatives are really upset with. Those are not being performed on minors anyway. So if that's the case, then, then, what's, then what's the big deal? If like, that's all that's being blocked, they say that's not happening anyway. So if that's being prohibited, I don't see what the big deal is. Now, I do see it if by gender affirming care just means talking to kids, even kids younger than 18 or 17, about, you know, about whether they think they might identify as some other gender, what their options might be down the road. And if that's being prohibited, yeah, I don't think, I don't think the state legislature should you know, be micromanaging to that level what, what doctors talk to parents and kids about. Um, I, I get, the only area with this I think this gets tricky is because I don't really even if, if the kid, the family, the doctors are all having conversations about what they think is medically appropriate. I don't really want to involve the state. I would say that on COVID topics and a bunch of to other topics as well. The difficulty comes when if you have like parents who don't want, you know, to, to have this kind of uh, have gender affirming care for, a, for an underage kid who does, then you have a kind of conflict of rights and what the law should be where, uh, where, where, where frankly, I'm not ex ex quite sure what should happen. Um, what, are your, what is your sense of this, Bacha? 
Um, I think it's amazing that the the law doesn't have a lower bound for how young the child could be when it would receive these protections. I mean, um, it, it's it, it uses the language a child, um, and I think that that what we're seeing now is essentially the setup for the 2024 presidential election. Mm-hmm. That's what this seems to me to be, is Newsom is staking out a territory to compete with Ron DeSantis, who had the parental rights and education bill, which did the exact opposite. It reaffirmed that a parent has the right to know if their child is transitioning, um, and that a parent has the right to be the one to educate the child about sexuality up until age eight, I believe it was. Um, and, uh, and and so this is sort of, um, you know, Newsom is staking out the other side of this, the other position that says, no, this is a decision that, you know, the child and somebody else makes together who could not be the parents if the parents are not on board with where the child is at. And um, I, I, I don't know about you, but this seems to me to be not, you know, the way that the Democrats have been trying to portray this is that this is sort of half that this is a polarizing issue, right? Half the nation is on is on the news in the Newsom camp, right? The child should deserve every kind of gender affirming care and the parent has no rights. And then half the nation, the conservative half is on the Ron DeSantis side saying, no, the parents have a right to have a say uh, up until the child. It's no longer a child, um, you know, but that is it's not the case that this is a polarizing issue. The DeSantis bill, recall, had 56 percent support among Democrats. So meaning that the vast majority of the nation is on the DeSantis side of this and believes that parents have a right to to have a say. I think that Glenn Youngkin's victory was another version of this. Parents showed up because they wanted to have a say in their children's education. And if you think that that doesn't extend to to gender affirming care, it certainly does. And so I think that the, the, you know, the Democratic elites are in for a rude awakening on this. The idea that you can now take a child from their parents' home, a child, no lower bound mentioned in the language of the law and take them to another state. Um, you know, that <laughs> there's the, the, the reason the bill, um, it goes out of its way to to state that this is not, you know, we don't see this as kidnapping, but it's, it, you know, I think a lot of parents would certainly see it in well, that way. That is, yeah, that is so the, the point here. If you're taking Democrats, uh, you know, media figure, people who take the side of the state against parents, are just always going to be in a rude for in a rude awakening because actual parents, including as you just acknowledged, Democratic parents, independents, etc., no one wants to find out that wait, I don't I don't have say over my own child because you're saying the state knows better, and I, that is like a very a much less ambiguous case where yeah that is just the totally wrong way to proceed. I do get I, I do start to get irritated with what looks to me like in some cases, Republican overreach into, again, we, we're, we've, we've just tried to reappropriate the idea of my body, my choice. It is not proper for the government health officials to decree for people, you know, what sort of medical things they're supposed to be making. And if, fam- if, if the families are all on board and they are receiving, you know, medical consulting, like, I don't have to approve of it. It has nothing to do with me. It's just mm-hmm. not my business. And I think to some degree, Republicans have to, have to watch out for losing that ethos. I, there's been in some talk, and I, I don't actually think DeSantis wanted to do this, but he was like asked at a press conference and sort of gave an indication that, yeah, maybe this could be a child services issue. Like, I don't want to sick child services on families who, you know, might be making choices I disagree with, who knows, but I don't want to sick child services on anyone. And I know that what will eventually happen is in, in places perhaps like California, child services will be sicked on families that are not on board with this kind of thing. The state, all, because in my view, the actual enforcement of the state 
tends toward a kind of cultural progressive. Uh, the enforcers tend to be culturally progressive. Um, it, we should always be very, those, those of us who are not uh, totally on board with everything con uh, cultural progressivism represents should be always concerned about giving more enforcement power to those agencies. Be I mean, conservatives are learning that lesson with, with Trump, with the FBI, with intelligence services. Like, don't, don't invest more powers in these people thinking they're going to, well, they're going to do what I want them to do. Like, in, in the long run, they don't. And that's my, uh, that's my, again, my note of caution I, I always sound to Republicans. Like, you know, watch out for saying, oh, yeah, the state should totally go after families and parents who are doing things I don't approve of. Like, <laughs> watch out for that. Um, and according to reporting from Reuters, the new law does not grant California courts any new powers to take custody of minors away from parents. Instead, it was designed in part to prevent California courts from participating in another state's attempt to take custody away from parents for providing gender-affirming care to their child. So it's, you know, it's one of those situations where I'm sure it's going to be interpreted all sorts of different ways, if it is even constitutional at all, which, you know, I don't, <laughs> I don't know that it is because, the, you know, this becomes then a state's rights issue. What, I mean, like, I, sure, I agree. California, I don't think the state of California should have to participate in some investigation in some other state, right, if it doesn't want to. I, it it'd be, it'd be weird to say that it does have to, but, um, but I don't know. It's, yeah, uh, and I, I think yeah, go another, ahead. just another point to this is we do recognize limits to parental control in certain cases, right? We, we as a society have come to understand, for example, that hitting your child can be construed as abuse, right? There's a level yep. at which we understand that, you know, as a society, certain behaviors from parents are no longer acceptable, even ones that were completely normal, right? Now we would be horrified to see a parent treat that way. And we would all agree, you know, yes, the state should intervene and take that child away. However, the idea idea that gender affirming care or refusing your child gender affirming care has now reached that level of consensus in society is just a fantasy of leftist elites. It's it's quite the opposite, actually. And I think that we're we're in for a big a big discussion as a society about, you know, because both sides are now claiming abuse, right? One side is claiming that to give this gender affirming care is abuse. The other side is claiming to deny it is abuse. And I think that we're, in, you know, as a society, this, there's no way around this conversation. There's only one way, which is through it. But I thought it was very neat to see kind of of the lineup of like what we're we're likely to get much more of in yeah. 2024. This is it. It's going to be this is going to be a big a big issue yeah. um, because it's clearly something that animates a lot of people on the right. But as you know, as you note, it's, it can be a winning issue. It has more broader implications that you can't take rights, autonomy, uh, the ability to have some say in what's going on in schools and elsewhere. You can't take that away from parents and families. Every candidate who, who you know, makes, makes it their whole personality to take uh, decision-making <laughs> away from parents and families, they're going to lose. That's my yeah. political advice for the day. All right, we'll have more rising in just a minute. Stay tuned. Um, what do you think is going to happen with this? Like, will these uh, bullhorn racist attack ads, Willie Horton 2.0 type things work? Because quite honestly, there had been a spike in homicides. That has nothing to do with Democratic policies, of course. And certainly Mandela Barnes is not yeah. responsible for any such thing. But will that work with the Republican voter base? You know, I, I absolutely think that there's a possibility. I mean, we see Republicans consistently go after fear instead of going after facts, right? 
That was MSNBC's Tiffany Cross during an interview with Texas State Representative and 2022 House candidate Jasmine Crockett about crime rates in the GOP. In that clip, they were referencing Wisconsin Lieutenant Governor Mandela Barnes, who is running for the Democratic, running to be Democratic senator in the November midterms. And I kind of thought it just encapsulates everything that is wrong with sort of mainstream media progressive punditry on these issues, just saying, oh, yeah, you, you know, crime is way worse. But now, of course, that's not anything having to do with Democratic policies. Of course, it's just let's take that off the table. But, you know, will we will will Republicans trick people into thinking their safety is actually an issue and they might you know, want different candidates or different policies? It, it's the kind of sort of self-deluding, naive you know, approach to these issues that is just, I think, so unpersuasive outside of that literal table discussion. Um, what, what do you think, Bacha? Yeah, I, I feel increasingly um, just so disgusted with people who try to portray any conversation about crime as racist because the victims of crime are overwhelmingly poor black and brown people. And to say that it is racist to believe that they deserve to live in dignity and safety, I, I just find that to be, and to say that as a as a pundit who's being paid, you know, hundreds and thousands of dollars to have that opinion, I, I find that so unacceptable. Um, and you know, the problem is, is that uh, when the GOP talks about crime, they they talk about it a lot as though the audience they're speaking to is a white audience. And I I, I critique them about this all the time. Um, neither side it can acknowledge the truth, which is that crime is a problem that disproportionately hurts the black community. And when the left says we won't talk about it and the right says we're going to talk about it as though it is a national problem that equally affects everybody, both sides are abandoning the community that really, really needs the most advocacy and the most voice and just is not given that on either side. So that's kind of how I see it. What do you think, Robbie? Yeah, no, you're right. Uh, too many in, in right, you know, you're often uh, critiquing, uh, you know, what the mainstream and progressive media is saying. To, uh, and I feel the same way about conservative media. It, too often in conservative media, it makes it sound like it's, right, illegal immigrants are streaming across the border and then entering affluent neighborhoods and, you know, right. engaging in crime against wealthy white people. No, that is not happening. That's not what's happening. The, the crime uh, increase is worst in the places, just like you said, where, uh, where low-income uh, Americans and in particular Americans of color are are living and, and forced to deal with it and forced to handle you know what's happening. It's different. It's not the same in every city. Some cities have fared better than others. Um, I, I note that Philadelphia, often not discussed, is by far the worst crime increase of all. It's it's horrible there compared to it, it's verging. It's just as bad as it was you know 30 years ago before the kind of general drop in crime occurred throughout uh, throughout the country. And look, I'm perfectly. Oh, we you know we can need to have a policy. I'm not sure what the right policies are. We need to discuss them. Look, I, I take you know I. I I understand what our, you know, more progressive friends and commentators say about, well, is more, you know, is more police, they saying more police is not the issue. The police already get tons of research, uh, resources and then look at how they fail when we need the most, in, uh, especially in, you know, stressful, in, in, in situations they're supposed to be pre prepared for, SWAT situations, which, uh, situations involving, you know, mass shootings and school shootings and things. And you see the horrendous bad performance of police. And, and so I take their point that, yeah, you know, maybe you see this kind of horrendous performance on a daily basis, too. So f fine. I, you're saying that's not the issue. 
I get it, but that's not the solution. Well, then what is the solution, though? Because then it's just, I think it's un, uh, unsatisfying if the solution is just, yeah, well, we need to invest more in housing and we need to invest more in welfare and in communities. But what does that look like? Because, you know, millions of dollars, billions of dollars are already thrown at this, at, at that project. And it seems to be, you're saying, so it's more money? Well, okay, but is that really what it is? I, like, I'm not persuaded by that. I, I, I a little bit disagree with you. I, I think sociologists have concluded that just having more cops on the street mm-hmm. is the only thing you can really do to mm. get crime down. And we are right now in a police shortage. So, yeah, it could be we're spending the money on the wrong thing. I don't know that they need tanks. You know, I think left and right. I mean, it's time to admit that the war on drugs has been a big mistake in the way that it's been carried out in this sort of war way. Right. But mm-hmm. um, we need to find a way to incentivize um, the hiring of more police officers, because that does seem to be the one thing that keeps um, uh, crime down. Although when I talk to police officers, they'll often tell me that the the, the criminals have become much more brazen, hmm. um, especially this is the case in New York, because they know that the, the the energy, the political energy is on the bail reform side of things. And so they will just do things that they would never do in front of police officers. And police officers now will sort of think, well, do I address this? I don't want to be the next you know, viral video. And so there's this sort of hmm. huge incentive to just allow this to continue. And of course, communities of color um, suffer the most. I, I I do want to point out there's a little bit of hypocrisy here um, in, in um, you know, Democrats saying that we're sort of that, that Republicans are fear mongering about crime. I mean, aren't they the biggest fear mongers when it comes to questions like, you know, d- threats to our democracy, semi fascists? Yeah. I mean, talk about fear mongering, calling half of the nation fascists. Right. You know, it's sort of a crime that's equally um, um, shared by both sides, although I just don't think it's not fair to say that it's fear mongering when you talk about crime, because there is a crime wave happening. What's fear-mongering is for a white politician to say, like, I can't remember who it was who said on Twitter the other day, um, I can't think of a, a single major city where I'd be comfortable taking my children on vacation. I mean, come on. If you're like a, a, an affluent white person coming to New York City, hanging out in, the, in, the, in you know, the Met, you know, like, you're not going to be subjected to this like a family living in Bed-Stuy, like a family living in Brownsville, who their children literally can't get to school without passing through Gang I, I guess, though, I guess I'm not persuaded, though, then by the excuse that the police are making, saying, uh, well, if they're saying, oh, yeah, we don't want to be, you know, we don't want to get in trouble, so we're just not going to, you know, do the kind of policing that's necessary anymore. That actually makes me even less sympathetic. <laughs> you're not doing your jobs. Do your jobs. You're, you're, you're supposed to do your jobs. And I'm, I guess I'm not, I'll, like, it can't be, right, if you're on a viral video, you know, beating someone up unprovoked, you're going to get in trouble for it. It seems like, you know, police have gotten in trouble for ge- for genuine cases of abuse that got caught on camera. It, it it doesn't seem to me so fuzzy that they can they should be able to like they will not be in trouble if there's footage of someone arresting someone who needed to be arrested or is resisting or is you know ca- like the the I, I mean the footage of uh, of uh, what was it, uh, Jacob Blake was that that was the guy with the who who reached for the knife in the car and you know and then he and then he got shot and I look I I, I understand from having seen that video footage why the police reacted the way they did in that one then then we'll you know then we'll see footage of no knock raids where they bang down somebody's door and a you know confused person is dis- disoriented and then they shoot in and go, okay well that's not legitimate that was 
that was bad. It seems to me like we're, the public is capable of sorting through. Um, yeah, that was, I understand the police perspective on that one, and, and this one I don't, and this one was totally disproportionate and should not have happened. Um, so, it, you know, if police are saying, well, we're not, with, with even, even some accountability, we're just not going to do our jobs anymore. That makes me, that makes me want to have policing as the solution even less. Well, so I, um, the, the cop that said that to me said that to me after two police officers were put on administrative leave for chasing down. Um, th uh, these guys were doing donuts on ATVs. Is that what they're called? Yeah. Um, and, and the police sort of started to chase after them. And the people in the car um, smashed the car into a wall and died. And the police officers were then penalized and put on administrative leave. And so that yeah. was a moment where it was like, obviously, they were just doing their jobs, but they were penalized for the criminal's actions because they ended up dying. It was just tragic. It's tragic that they died. Um, I, I, I don't see, I, I don't think that any good police officer would hold it against the people who filmed um, George Floyd's murder because they were all, I mean, the ones that I know were on the side of George Floyd. They thought that that was murder and that was horrifying and that wasn't policing. You know, it wasn't, that wasn't it. It was the response that came after yeah. that and that continues now in, in the progressive world to where the police are always wrong and always bad. And, mm. you know, Robbie, a lot of people looked at that Jacob Blake video and I mean, Kamala Harris then visited his bedside and called him a hero after that video was made public. And I believe that officer was on administrative leave. So it's not so simple. And often, you know, you and I know very well that, you know, Twitter can often, uh, you know, amplify the wrong side of things very much. And that's something that people are sensitive to. Hmm. Well, we'll continue this discussion at a later date and we'll have more rising right after this. Stay with us. Why do you stand behind Lee County's decision to not have that mandatory evacuation until the day before the storm? Well, did you, where was your industry stationed uh, when the storm hit? Were you guys in Lee County? No, you were in Tampa. So that's, you know, they were following the weather track and um, they had to make decisions based on that. But, you know, 72 hours, they weren't even in the cone. 48 hours, they were on the periphery. Uh, so you got to make the decisions the best you can. I will say, uh, you know, they delivered the message to people. They had shelters open. Uh, you know, everybody had adequate opportunity to at least get to a shelter within the county. Um, but, you know, a lot of the residents did not um, did not want to do that. I think for probably for various reasons, some people just don't want to leave their home, period. They're island people, whatever. But I think part of it was so much attention was paid to Tampa that I think a lot of them probably thought that they wouldn't get the worst of it. So, you know, they um, but they did. And I think it's um, it's easy to second guess them, but they were ready for the whole time and, um, and and made that call when when there was justifiable to do so. That was Florida Governor Ron DeSantis defending Lee County officials decision to order a mandatory evacuation less than 24 hours before Hurricane Ian made landfall on the state and a day after several neighboring counties issued their orders. As of now, according to CNN, the death toll from the storm has reached 76, seems to still be rising, unfortunately. At least 35 of those fatalities were in Lee County itself. So uh, I understand the thrust of that reporter's question is, you know, why shouldn't there have been an evacuation earlier uh, for that county? And then the governor saying, well, you know, it didn't look like that county was necessarily going to get hit as bad as other places. You know, these are decisions that officials are trying to make with you know, as much accuracy as they possibly can have. And you don't, you know, you don't want to order a mandatory evacuation unless it's 
um, absolutely necessary because people, you know, some people don't want to leave their homes. That it, that can create, you know, everybody trying to leave at once can create traffic jams or other problems. So it's really, you know, it's it's, it's a measure you only want to take if you absolutely have to. Um, and he, you know, he was defending what the county officials did. Although, so so perhaps they should. It sounds like they should have ordered one earlier. But you know, it's it's a, it it is always kind of a second guessing thing because it's tough to know. You know exactly the right way to to handle the, these things. Although it, it does sound like maybe it should have been ordered earlier than that, if its neighbors ordered earlier evacuations as well. Yeah, I, I can't help but feel like the media desperately wanted DeSantis to fail um, <laughs> because yeah. they uh, really don't like him and go back and forth between calling him worse than Trump and um, you know they they they're sort of taking up this posture towards him that's very antagonistic. Um, you know, I I'm not Death I'm not Santis. qualified to say <laughs> exactly. Death and Santis, yes. I, I I just don't feel qualified to say whether he made the wrong call or not. I think that with Republicans, you're going to have people erring on the side of autonomy and giving people the right to make their own choices, and with liberals, you'll err on the side. Democrats erring on the side of you know we're going to make that choice for you. And um, I don't think that there's enough information to say he made some huge error. I will. Say say like his response to the reporter um he tends to do that you know to to get aggressive right well where were you people you made the yeah. same mistake too right he's sort of giving and you could imagine someone like glenn youngkin just being asked like are you did you make a mistake here and just smiling and saying no you know and like moving <laughs> on and so i think that you know we're, we're, you're going to increasingly see him in that sort of you know antagonistic posture but i i do feel that to some extent that kind of you're starting to see emerge between the media and DeSantis the same thing you had with Trump, which is, um, they, you know, a kind of very symbiotic relationship uh, where each side is getting a lot out of being antagonistic. Well, here's more of what DeSantis had to say about the evacuation order. Is that one of the things you'll be reviewing once we get out of the aftermath, people get their power back on looking at those evacuation orders? Because even Lee County, if they would have followed their own evacuation orders from what we've reviewed, they should have had that mandatory evacuation order sooner. Well, but, you know, the issue, though, is also that there were a lot of, you know, they informed people and most people did not want to do it. I mean, that's just that's just the reality. So you know, you're in a situation. Are you going to grab somebody out of their home that doesn't want to? I don't think that's the appropriate use of government. I mean, I think that that, that takes it a little too far. Yeah, exactly as you just said, Bachev. <laughs> really, really uh, getting to the contrast between you know how the, some Republicans and conservatives handle these kinds of public safety issues, and and what is I guess now the progressive uh, approach, which is not actually like these positions were not necessarily set in stone, but they, they are what we've arrived at because of the pandemic and because of some other things. Um, and you're right, there's a there's an autonomy and individual individuality, a libertarian in fact strain in um, in conservatism, although a different kind of conservatism that was more you know safety and security oriented. You know, in the, in the national security context, at least conservatism for a while there was more about you know, kind of government enforcing its will and for progressivism was about civil liberties and due process and individual rights. And, uh, you know, now it's now those things have solidified a little bit um, the other way. I did want to before we go. Well, I guess I should wait until she's, she's here tomorrow. But I owe Brianna an apology because she said uh, she mentioned that shark video uh, in the hurricane. There was a shark swimming where it shouldn't. And I, I said that it was fake, that it had been debunked as fake because those things always are. 
Lo and behold, according to the New York Times, it was real. This is, it's, they're never real. All these videos are always fake. In this case, it was an actual shark, you know, swimming down the highway or the road or wherever it was. So um, I'll have to I'll have to let Brianna know tomorrow. But while we were while we were talking about the hurricane, <laughs> wanted to make make that admission. I got that one wrong. So um, we'll have more rising in just a minute. Stay with us. I can't vote for Biden. Like, I'd vote for Trump before I'd vote for Biden. And the reason being is, like, you knew this. You knew he was deteriorating. Forget about his policies when he was lucid. Forget about, like, he was lucid during the Obama administration. You barely heard from him. Yeah, he was much, much better. Uh, If you listen to, like, a speech he gave in 2012 or 2013, he has lost several steps. See, regardless of what you think about his policies, like, as a human... That's in a position of extreme stress and power. Yeah. That is nuts. That's it's, nuts. It's, That's it's, nuts. It's really unbelievable. That's insane. He's I, so far gone. That was podcast giant Joe Rogan commenting on President Joe Biden's mental and physical stamina during an interview with guest Dave Smith. So, yeah, that was interesting because famously, Joe Rogan is not a fan of Trump at all. You know, he's he's declined. He said that he's specifically declined to have Trump on his show because he did not want to be construed as having done anything to help Trump get elected. Um, he supported uh, Bernie Sanders in at least one of the previous two cycles. So, uh, you know, it's, it's telling there that he says that he would sooner vote for Trump than he would vote for uh, Biden. Of course, you don't have to vote for either is what I would as someone who proudly did not vote for Trump or Biden either time and looks forward to not voting for Trump or Biden in the future again. Uh, and actually, Dave Smith, who was the guest there, is, uh, is a libertarian. Uh, he's somewhat involved with the Libertarian Party. He's a podcaster, comedian. I know him a little bit. Um, we've been on uh, panels together on Fox and some other places. We have some back and forth um, on, on social media. Sometimes we have, I think, con- different ideas about what is you know the right approach for spreading our views, but probably most of our the views themselves are probably mostly the same between us. So, uh, and I, I didn't watch that whole thing, but I'm, sh- I'm sure Dave eventually jumped in with a, you know, you don't have to. He should have at least. I, I, I trust that he did. With a, you know, there are alternatives to uh, to those two choices. There is a libertarian. There are going to be a libertarian party candidate. There's going to be a green party candidate, and you know some others. And uh, and uh, bad. The the two party duopoly con- continues to serve us choices that I think are bad, and so many people think are bad. And Joe Rogan evidently, evidently thinks are, are bad. Are they, are they bad, Bacha? Is it that bad? <laughs> um, first of all, I'm glad you brought up that he refused to have Trump on. What a baller move. I mean, I just, I can't get past that. And also, he didn't, like, immediately brag about it. It came up in a totally different context, like, years later. Like, I just think that's that's what FU money looks like. It's like, yeah. I can just say, yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to give this person a platform because I don't need to. I think that's so cool that he did that. I, I do disagree with him. Um, I, I, uh, I Not that I think Joe Biden is a great choice. I don't know that I'll be able to vote for him, but it's not because of this mental acuity thing. I mean, yeah, he has deteriorated. If you even watch videos of him during the campaign two years ago, he was in much better shape verbally. But I just don't think that there's been a mental deterioration to, you know, the, uh, unless that's the reason that things are not getting done. But I think a lot of the choices that are being made are exactly the same choices he would have made five years ago, 10 years ago. So I, you know, I, I just the, the thing of sliding into appeasing the far left that that just seems to me like, you know, 
the kind of decisions that a lot of Democrats of all ages make. Um, I will say that over Rosh Hashanah dinner, I had a lot of people over and um, somebody raised the question of if you had to choose between voting for Donald Trump and Kamala Harris, who would you vote for? And boy, was that a polarizing and interesting question mm. because it was like, you know, whatever you think about him. And, and I think that um, actually Joe Rogan does go on to talk about Kamala Harris there and, and how, it, you know, it's so interesting because she's become such a cipher um, you know, they'll put her up there and, the, you know, that kind of word salad will come out and you'll be like, what, where are you at on any issues? It's so hard to tell. Uh, so that was a really interesting uh, thought experiment Very for viewers to try at home. <laughs> yeah, she she doesn't really represent. I don't know. I don't know what her ideas are. She, you know, for a while it was it was she was a she was a prosecutor. She was bra uh, uh, she would brag. She was glad uh, to present herself in that way and then now of course that's totally out of step with what sort of the you know the the with with how the media the elite media wants democrats to position themselves so she's run totally in the other direction she's supposed to be in charge of immigration of the border but you know that is not a problem that looks like it's being resolved in fact it looks like it's gotten uh it's gotten much worse so i i think there there are a lot of ways in which she will by default be biden's successor because you know in our very modern political system being the being the vice president um is a big deal it confers a lot of legitimacy and, and frankly name recognition on you I, I think it's why uh why joe biden actually kind of easily got the nomination uh, despite you know so many so much media so much pundits say well he did but he did terribly in the debates you know all these other candidates are so exciting but no like actual americans knew who he was and you know weren't paying so close to the minutia of politics day in and day out like oh yeah joe biden i know who that is and so it's he ends up having a, a lot of uh, an easier time of it for that reason so you could see the same thing happening to kamala harris although i don't think she has i, I mean she's not well liked i think in the same way that that joe biden was you know broadly kind of in a I don't know, congenial sense of approved of. It was someone that I think Americans felt like they knew and also comes across. And look, you have to give him you know, credit for what what he does successfully politically, or at least used to. I think he came across as sincerely, um, um, you know, someone who'd experienced loss and, and, and spoke in a, in a, at a time when we were all experiencing tremendous loss, spoke in a way that was reassuring and that he, he understood it and, and and was, you know, offering some kind of return to normalcy, both in terms of the pandemic and in terms of, you know, how angry and bitter our politics became, uh, partly because of Trump and under Trump, but not entirely because of Trump and under Trump. Uh, and then now that has not that has not really happened at all. We had to the Democrats had to be fought on pandemic stuff to make them give it up. And then, you know, our, our politics are just as acrimonious um, as, as they were before. Not that we want to excuse, definitely don't want to excuse Donald Trump. I mean, like he said over the weekend, I think on Truth Social, he made, he made a kind of racist attack on Elaine Chow, Mitch McConnell's wife, um, uh, say, you know, saying that she was, uh, uh, was responsible for all of Mitch McConnell's bad decision making. Like, not only should you not do that, like she was in his cabinet. <laughs> he made her, he put her in the cabinet. So like Trump is always saying, all these people are terrible. All of them are bad. Like, but you 
put them in their positions. What, at what point does that reflect on your judgment then? If, if you're saying everyone is bad, but like you're, it's so, it's just, so, it's never, and for, and this is a problem with some, a certain subset of conservative voices that Trump can just be forgiven for, for anything. It's never his fault. Always somebody else's. Oh, they're not really doing what he wanted. He can't get his way. Everyone's conspired against him. Very whiny, very whiny in my view. Yeah, I mean, I think separating out the person Trump from the policies is exact, you know, is exactly what I'm saying about Biden. Like, it's very hard for me to imagine, like, which of the policies that he has enacted do you think he wouldn't have enacted five years ago when he was, you know, more, you know, verbally, you know, uh, mm-hmm. uh, articulate, right? Which of these policies do you think, you know, you could never imagine President Obama enacting these? Like, none of them, right? He's 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 reigning exactly the way if you had predicted, you know, two years ago he would, he would. So I think. You know, and 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 similarly with with Trump. I mean, for so many of his supporters, and we've talked about this a lot here. Um, it wasn't about Trump the man. You know, they totally didn't care what he was tweeting. They totally didn't care what came out of his mouth. It was about the policies, which were many of which were working very well yeah. for the people who most needed it. So I think it's, you know, it's going to be, it's very interesting times to be an yeah. American. Well, I, cha- I challenge <laughs> them to prove it. They can pick someone who has the same policies as Donald Trump, yeah. but isn't literally Donald Trump. I think that would go a long way to, uh, to bearing that theory out. But uh, all right, well, that's it for us today. Tomorrow on Rising, we will actually have a debate panel on climate change and natural disasters, which Brianna and I have been disagreeing with. So we'll have some actual experts to weigh in on it. Uh, of course, it's been lovely having you today, Bacha. And we'll miss you until, uh, until you're back. Thank you so much. See you in a few weeks. And we'll be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who like to listen while on the go, we're now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. Catch us on the Plex TV app and elsewhere. And I will see you all back tomorrow. Bacha will be back with us again. I think you're just off next week, but we're not, you're not going anywhere. Right. You'll be back and uh, I'll have more rising for you tomorrow. And I'll be watching.